Welcome to Maximum Mom with Elise Buey, where you'll hear from women who are navigating the same messy journey as you. Lawyering, entrepreneurship, and mothering, what a trifecta. We're here to share tips, resources, wins, losses, and encouragement for moms who are raising a family while building a law firm. So you feel less alone in your journey toward a fulfilling career and being the best mom you can be. Well, thank you for joining me. Thanks everybody for joining us on the Maximum Mom podcast. Today, I am so excited to have Claire Parsons. And I cannot wait for Claire to tell you all all about what she's doing and her work with meditation and mindfulness. I mean, I found Claire recently and just am a huge fan of just everything she does. So I'm super excited to have her on the podcast. Welcome, Claire. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Elise. I'm glad to be here. Well, we are so happy to have you. Well, tell us, um, I always like to start out, I mean, you know, the mom part. I find the mom part to be super fun. Tell us who's in your family. I mean, who makes you a mom? Yeah, so I have two little girls. Uh, One is about to turn nine and one just turned five. Uh, Sophie is the oldest. Eleanor is my youngest. And I am married. My husband's Brian and he is a CPA. And my parents are also in town. They're both lawyers and they are sort of a part of my extended family. They live really close and they help out a lot with the girls. And I've got a sister here in town. So uh, I have most of my family right here close by. That's wonderful. Now your husband must be pretty busy being a CPA. Isn't it busy this time of the year? Does he not deal with taxes in that regard? He is a tax CPA and he does a lot with sales and use tax. So because he is the person at his office who really knows that uh, he's very busy, he just got a promotion too. So he uh, is uh, learning a new role as well this year. So yeah, it's always crazy from January to April. I bet. Yeah, he he doesn't like cheese. So I always take January to April as the time where I eat all our cheesy favorites with the girls. So mac and cheese, (laughs) cheese enchiladas, you know, that's kind of how I make up for it. (laughs) That's hilarious. That's so funny. You mentioned cheese. I was just talking to my husband. My mom used to make something called cheese souffle. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it is delicious. And we used to love it. Sounds good. Yeah, is awesome. Okay, well, tell us, tell us what you do besides being a mom and making your cheesy dishes. <laughs> so, uh, actually, my my day job, I guess, is being a lawyer. I'm a local government lawyer um, at a small firm here in Northern Kentucky. We're right across the river from Cincinnati. Um, And some of my practice gets into Ohio, but for the most part, it's in the northern Kentucky area. And then it extends actually throughout a lot of the state. We represent in insurance defense, uh, cities, counties and school districts and litigation. But then I also have a good part of my practice that is general counsel for cities, uh, counties and school districts. Uh, I'm a city attorney. And then the majority of my practice is with school districts. Um, and we represent small independent school districts and the largest, uh, the third largest school district in the state. And I really like it. I kind of fell into school law, but it's really suited to my personality. And I really like the clients and getting to work to help the school, the kids. Uh, so it's a great practice to have. I like litigation, but I like that all my practice is not litigation. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I mean, tell us a little bit more. I would be curious to know, I mean, what what do you do in school law exactly? I mean, to where 
Like, what would a day look like if you were representing school law clients all day? What would that look like? Yeah, I mean, it, honestly, like it's it, no day looks the same. I have because I have some litigation that makes up part of my days. I am sometimes doing depositions and litigation type things, drafting motions, uh, doing discovery, that kind of stuff. But uh, because I'm general counsel, a lot of my day is actually comprised of phone calls and emails. Um, And so I will get calls about a student issue, a personnel issue, just a planning issue, something they want to do. I review contracts. I uh, will sometimes help edit policies. I cover public meetings. Um, So some of those are right now virtual and some are in person. It's a combination, but my dad was in local government for about 30 years. And so that's kind of what drew me to local government. I started out in litigation for uh, for cities, um, a lot of civil rights kind of stuff. My second year of practice, we had a lot of special education issues that came up and they needed somebody to learn it. So they walked into my office and said, do you want to learn this? And I was like, I went to Catholic school. I don't know anything about special ed, but I started doing it and I became good at it. And then I became the school law associate. And then that became my practice. So that's amazing. Yeah, that is awesome. Okay. Well, you have to tell us now we're going to just get rid of that boring old law stuff. And we're going to go to the important stuff. I want to talk about your meditation and mindfulness and how you got into it. I mean, I want you to just like lay it all on me. I mean, I need to learn it all. And so how did you get started with meditation and mindfulness? Um, it's a very random story. Uh, I, uh, I was a philosophy major in college and one night I was stuck at Barnes and Noble with my parents. Um, and I think my husband after dinner, you know how you like all drive and then they're, they want to look around the store, but you want to go home. And so you, you couldn't, you had to wait. So I wandered into like the philosophy and spirituality section and I found a book on Buddhism. I had not read much Asian philosophy in college when I did philosophy. And so I just picked it up and I read it, I think a couple of years later, it sat on my bookshelf for a long time. I finally read it. And I was like, this makes so much sense, more sense than any other argument I've ever read. It really spoke to me. I was like, I'm going to start meditating. Well, I didn't do that. It wasn't until a couple of years later when I had my first daughter, I had a very difficult pregnancy. She was IUGR, which means she was small. And they didn't know why. Um, I got put on bed rest, had to do a lot of testing. My firm was pretty supportive of me during that, but I was not supportive of myself. I was very judgmental. I was very ashamed. I did not seek help from my friends or support. And I basically just fell apart for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, I had to come back from that. Once I was able to do therapy and, you know, (laughs) stabilized again, I came back to work and then I had a, came back to a very busy practice I had a two week wrongful death trial out of town and I was so busy. I couldn't see straight. And I had a baby who still was not sleeping through the night. I was kind of losing my mind. And so I started meditating then and it, it helped me. It was a time where I couldn't, I remember wasting time to try to figure out what I'm going to do next, which fire is screaming at me loudest. Right. And um, so that was when I started. It seems like crazy now that I did that because like, you know, a lot of times people tell me they don't have time, but it was at my busiest, craziest time that I started. And it helped me immediately to sort of find some steadiness over time. I started to notice that I had some pretty bad overthinking tendencies and those sort of faded away. I started to rush less. I started to have fewer physical signs of stress I started to realize that I had just been walking around carrying stress with me most of the time. There was a vague feeling I felt all the time where I almost felt like I could cry at any minute. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of how I lived everyday life. And then that sort of went away. Then I started playing around more with compassion practices and it started to change how I treated other people and actually noticed other people's feelings more. I tend to be very intense. And so sometimes just forget that. And then the, the real magic that happened was a little bit later when I started to realize that I had been very lonely in my life and I mm-hmm. had just ignored it for a long time because I was busy and I, you know, I've always kind of felt like, you know, I've always had this vague sense that I don't necessarily fit in or I'm different or something like that. And it kept me from reaching out to people and even kept me from reaching out to friends. And when I started to actually feel that and recognize what it was, then I started to be able to understand that I was lonely, not because of anything being wrong with me, but because I wasn't doing things to reach out to other people. So I started changing that. And then, you know, everything kind of changed in the span of a few years. I went from being an associate to a non-equity partner to equity partner, you know, winning awards and, you know, actually feeling fairly happy and secure in my practice. And so that was kind of what put me on the path of writing and speaking about it and launching the blog, which is what you're looking at behind me. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, your mindfulness and meditation and your guided meditations, I think I came upon them in a Facebook group with other women attorneys. And literally, it has been life changing for me. I mean, to use them. And I mean, I do them daily. And I mean, I've been really, you know, kind of stalking you. And so um, it is just, I mean, it has really changed how I see things. And I've now, I mean, I've shared it with my team. And like I told you earlier, I mean, I shared it. I was on a clubhouse thing with a bunch of mom Texas lawyers and I was shared it with them. And I think we all need more of it. I mean, can you talk to us? about because I know a lot of us and I know I am one initially when I started I'm like I can never meditate I would suck at that like I am the most high strung chaotic kind of you know like can barely sit still person I was like I'm going to be horrible at this but I mean you have really helped me understand and listening to all of your guided meditations that I mean I'm not sucking at it necessarily like my brain does what my brain does and that's okay you know but part of it is you know learning to guide yourself back can you talk a little bit about you know kind of some of the hurdles people have in getting started with a meditation practice I think there is a lot of tendency to moralize meditation because it is it is a it's a scientific practice in a way like it is something that scientifically you know, if you do it, there is research that says that it can help you in terms of your body, in terms of your mind to heal. So there's, there's clinical research relating to mindfulness, but it is based on Buddhist thought and it is based on a spiritual practice and it can be a spiritual practice for many in some ways it is for me. And so I think sometimes people tend to be somewhat intimidated by it. And they start to think that if they struggle with the practice at any point, it's because there is something wrong with them mm. or they're just not suited to it. And, and I'm not telling you that mindfulness is the only way or that everybody needs to meditate um, or anything like that. But I don't think that if you have a problem with a meditation practice, I don't think it means there's something wrong with you. I think it means that there may be particular challenges that you might face because of the practice you're using. So one thing to, to point out is just that there's a lot of different styles of practice. You won't see mantra meditations from me as much as I love writing and words. I just do not like mantra meditations. They just don't work for me. Mm -hmm. I do like loving kindness, which is sort of close to mantra, 
but like, I, I just never liked them. And it's kind of interesting with the word thing, but they just aren't for me. And I kind of think because I have no problem with words. I love them. So I just don't need to practice that way. Right. Um, but like, you know, it, the, the struggle with meditation is where the learnings are. So mm-hmm. sucking at it is where you get the benefits. Honestly, it's, it's being willing to sort of suck at things for a while. There's a common saying within uh, like Buddhist circles and a lot of, there's a saying that's, that's no muck, no lotus, you know, the, the lotus blossoms that, that come, those only come because they're growing in the muck around them in the swamp. Um, You can't benefit from a meditation practice if you don't wrestle with those things. You know, one thing that I, one of my first retreats I went on, I realized that I was rushing back to my focal point. So I, when you, when you breath practice, they tell you, focus on the breath. When you get distracted, just come back to it. I realized that I had been rushing back to the breath instead of really noticing what was arising. Mm-hmm. I just went right back to the breath and kind of like cut to the chase. And it, it kind of, I sat and talked to the teacher for a while. And she said, she's like, just sit there for a while. You don't always have to go to the breath. And I'm like, I can just sit there. And she's like, yeah, just sit there. So I started to do that. And I realized I was missing a lot of insights because I was rushing back to the breath. But like, so basically what I learned was I had been meditating wrong for three years and it just made me laugh because I I laughed because I realized if I had been, if I had benefited so much from meditating wrong for three years, imagine (laughs) what I can get from meditating right, you know? So, you know, it's, it's like you can, there's always things that you can practice on. And it's really not that, that anything you do wrong is really doing something wrong. It's really just a new opportunity to practice in a new way. And it's just remembering that and not beating yourself up. That's part of it. Oh, I mean, I think that not beating yourself up part is so critical. And I think we women are just masters at beating ourselves up. And I mean, I I did a podcast episode on that mean girl in your head. And I feel like I'm wrestling with that mean girl all the time. I'm shushing her constantly. And I, I find meditation has been really helpful in that regard, you know, being able to just be still enough and listen and, you know, just have some of those insightful moments. And also I call it like eavesdropping on my mean girl, you know? So when my mean girl is talking, instead of always just believing whatever she's saying, I call her Eloise. She's, you know, seems to me, she's got to be more official than I am with an official name, but, um, you know, really paying attention to what's going on in meditation has been really helpful to me in that regard, you know, really getting insight into what's happening in my own head. And that's definitely true. And I think that's, that's certainly one of the things that you will notice if you start a practice, um, because if you can first understand and just be aware that you were thinking that does so much, because when you start to understand that you were thinking, then the next thing you can do is challenge the thought, determine whether it is true, determine whether it is useful, but also like just not get into the story of it. Because when you were in the story of it, you're basically in a dream, right? And we know that stuff that happens in dreams are not real, but when we're in the dream, we don't know that. So when you can get out of that, you have some power. There's, there's more you can do with that sort of nasty voice in your head though. And part of that, that progression, I mean, the first thing for me, like, as you're saying is that I understood that that voice in my head, I call it my doubt voice, that I understand that I don't have to listen to that doubt voice. Mm -hmm. I think another way of dealing with that and and maybe further on down the progression is that 
you can actually start to understand that in some ways your doubt voice or your nasty voice has helped you. Oh yeah. And so you can start to even accept that piece of yourself even more Mm -hmm. um, and start to not be troubled by it. You kind of (laughs) let it be there, but it's also something that is just part of who you are. And that, that actually can help as well too. But I like, I like Eloise. I like the name. That's nicer than doubt voice. (laughs) It's funny because sometimes Eloise will be doing her thing and I'll say, I'm like, okay, Eloise, we're going to just be together having this. And it's kind of like what you're talking about. I mean, I, I didn't know it was kind of a progression, but I think that's part of, you know, me accepting who I am and how I kind of get to the, the successes or the resolutions I have. I do have to work through things with Eloise. And so I find that Sometimes it's actually helpful, which I know sounds, I probably sound so out the box, me and Eloise, but um, I, I don't know. I just think it's been really helpful. I would love for you to explain one of the things that I really like. You have one of your guided meditations that, I mean, I, I probably have listened to like, I don't know, 300 times, and but I, I do have to admit, sometimes I fall asleep and I know you tell me I shouldn't do that at the beginning. Sometimes that happens. So But it's the one that combines like, you know, doing like a body scan, the breath work, and then like loving kindness. Can we talk a little bit about that loving kindness piece? Because I mean, that is something that really speaks to my heart. And I'm just curious about where does that come in? How did that come in? You know, and, and what are you seeing from that work that you're doing? So I don't actually even remember how I started doing loving kindness practices. I know that like at at the beginning of my practice, I just started sitting very short periods of time. I couldn't even use guided meditations because all the apps they had now weren't as readily available then. And I was cheap. So I didn't want to go out and buy a bunch of meditations and stuff. You know, I'm like a coupon lady, so I don't, I don't spend money if I don't think I'm going to use it. So um, I, I didn't do that first. So I think it must have been Tara Brock that I probably came to loving kindness practice. She has a podcast where she does talks and things, and she also has guided meditations on her podcast. So I think she had some meta or loving kindness ones, and I probably did them there. Um, But I love loving kindness. There are a lot of people that don't like loving kindness practices at first. They can make people feel uncomfortable. Sometimes they don't like the words may, may I be at peace? May I be happy? Some people don't like sending love to themselves. They feel uncomfortable about that. Sometimes they don't like sending love to the difficult people because it's hard for them to do that. Even though the difficult people are acting in a bad way. Um, So some people struggle with that, especially in the West. I didn't, and I'm not exactly sure why, but I, I, I kind of have believed that it was probably because I just really needed it, but it just always made me feel really good. And it was something that I remember I often did like on a day when like the world seemed dark, dark and terrible. I, you know, where I had like a day where I was in a deposition for 12 hours with an opposing counsel, I really didn't like, or my kids were acting up or I had a fight with my husband or anything like that. And it helped. And it wasn't so much like it distracted me from things. It was more that it reminded me of what I had. Over time, it was something that I could do to start to understand the difficult people in my life and turn something around. Many times I realized that when I did loving kindness practice, it would lead me to actually reach out more to people in my life, which is something I've always struggled with. And so problems that I had in my life didn't seem as big. 
And so it was a slow progression, but it's become my favorite kind of practice. Most of the time when I'm sitting, it's just Vipassana meditation or breath practice where I sit, I I settle with the breath for a little bit, but then I just kind of sit. I just kind of let whatever comes up, come up. And I go back to the breath as an anchor when I need it. But Mm -hmm. I finish with loving kindness. I have done the traditional phrases, may you be at peace, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be at safe for a long time. Um, I just am taking a mindful self-compassion class right now. And we did an exercise in there where we kind of came up with our own phrases. So mine have changed a little bit. And it was really interesting to see how easy it was for me to identify the phrases that really speak to me and how big of an impact it, it had to change my phrases up um, and mix it up. I mean, I've been doing it for about six or seven years now with those phrases. So, you know, it's time to change things up every now and then. Well, that is fascinating. I would love to learn more about, I mean, the classes to take and things like, you know, I'm such a baby in this and that obviously I just have so much to learn and I look forward to getting more information because I have found it just really helpful. And I mean, the thought that your phraseology, I mean, for you to be able to see such an impact in making a change in your phrase, it makes perfect sense because I I mean, I would think there would be very specific things to your heart and your situation that that phraseology could really capture in a way that could be very impactful to your practice. And so that is super interesting. What class are you taking now? Like who, who gives these classes? So there's a few compassion trainings that you can try. Stanford University has one. I believe Emory um, has another. And some of them, they have some similar themes. I am taking Kristen Neff's Mindful Self-Compassion class online. And I have a few more weeks left of that to do. Kristen Neff is one of the leading researchers in self-compassion. So she's not someone who was trained at a Zen center or an ashram. She is a clinical researcher, and she has a book on self-compassion. Christopher Germer is another teacher, and he has another book on self-compassion. Both of them cover very similar themes, but the tone of their book is very different, but they work together to develop the mindful self-compassion course. And so that's the class that I'm taking. And you can find online um, trainings for mindful self-compassion. And I will tell you that for the lawyers listening to this, um, the language And some of the things that you do in the mindful self-compassion class, it may sound schmoopy to you. I'm going to use a Seinfeld word. I mean, it may seem very soft and different to you. So if that is, you might want to try the book out first and kind of listen to that, but like it's really can be beneficial. And just because you take the class and it has that tone, it doesn't mean you always have to act that way. But when you can develop the skills to do that and to use it when necessary, and, you know, and, and maybe even combine it with your normal lawyer persona. I think there's a lot of power in that. Oh. Is, you know, these kind of practices have not made me a weaker litigator. They've made me a stronger one. Um, and I can say that with 100% certainty Absolutely. because they just give you more flexibility and they give you the ability to take care of yourself, even when you're going into scary, risky situations, which we right. generally are. Oh, I just think that is so true. I mean, I think the more we learn and the more we understand about our own emotions and our own reactions, and that helps us understand the people we're going into court against or that we're sitting in a deposition with or an opposing counsel. I mean, I think you get so much insight into others through getting more and more insight into yourself and how things work. 
And I just think it's critical to the work we do. I mean, I, I'm one of those total woo-woo types. Like I think there's so much emotional work that could be done in the lawyer arena that is not being done thus far. And, you know, in just every way, whether it's towards clients or even, you know, focus from a boss to an attorney. I mean, I think our work environments could use this. Interestingly, we had a team meeting on Friday and I sent out your website to my whole team. And I was like, okay, guys, I'm going to go off on my little woo-woo thing now. And we're going to talk about meditation. But when I saw your meditation, you had done the guided meditation for children. And I was so interested to get that to my team members who had children, because I thought, what an amazing thing to start teaching your child. And I mean, I know I felt like I was doing a lot of work teaching my children about emotional intelligence and growth mindset. And, you know, I would have all these, what I considered kind of weird conversations with my kids and, you know, but I think they're very helpful. And so when I saw that, I was very eager to get that to my team. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about what made you do the child, the guided meditation and how it's working like with your own children and I mean, what do you think about that? And how can parents get started with that? I think that, so my kids don't necessarily meditate every day. My oldest has, is a little bit of an anxious one. My youngest is more of a stubborn one uh, and a daredevil. So my oldest is, uh, she has played around with the apps and we sometimes will meditate together. I can't say that she has like any kind of regular practice, but she's interested in it mostly because I do it. And so I facilitate really. I don't push. I've learned to not push. I used to want to, but like, it just doesn't work. So I would, I would generally say like, try to make it fun. If, if they, if you do it and talk to them about it and act like you enjoy it and that's like, it helps you, then I think it's more likely that they will help you or they will, they will be interested and they'll ask questions. And then, you know, maybe you can do that together. But it can be like, I, I would say for small kids, it can start really small, like, like uh, teaching them how to take a breath, mm-hmm. um, teaching them what it feels like to notice what they are feeling when they are feeling it. And that's just like, if they act upset, like you can sort of ask them questions like, what's going on? How do you feel right now? Do you feel mad right now? What does that feel like in your body? Like those kind of things, that is mindfulness. It's just mindfulness for what kids can understand. But to answer your question about why I did that, I kind of have themes for the blog. And so I did the theme of one year of COVID and it was just, it's a heavy month, right? It's, yeah. it's some heavy stuff. And one of the themes was on loneliness. You know, I, I'm doing virtual litigation this week. So we had some like heavy stuff. So I wanted to have a little bit of fun because I do think yeah. like part of the experience of the COVID pandemic has not been only bad. I mean, I think I've actually experienced some benefits from being able to slow down, um, be with my kids and my family a little bit more, you know, enjoy some of the time at home and those kind of activities. So I just wanted to make it a little bit more fun because part of my project with the blog is, you know, I know like meditation seems woo woo and there are, you know, there are this touchy feely component to it. And I think that's absolutely essential to a meditation practice The way I kind of see it is if you just have awareness, which is what a lot of people like to focus on with mindfulness, awareness, being clear, understanding the facts as they are on the ground, that's part of it. But if you don't have those compassion practices with it and you don't have at least some filter of compassion and friendliness to experience that awareness, it's a really hard life. I think if you just have the awareness without the compassion, that's despair. It so is you just need that compassion. So you can do something about the stuff that comes to your awareness. 
then you can take care of yourself and others through it. That's why we're here. And that's why we, we became lawyers. Right. So I think part of what I am trying to do is explain to people that this is something for you in your life, your messy life. It works for you too. And it actually can be fun and relatable and it can maybe help you. It doesn't really change who you are so much as I think it helps you learn who you are and be who you are a little bit more. So that's kind of one reason I decided to talk about the kids just because it was fun for me. And it was a meditation I had actually tried with my daughters and and they liked it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm super eager to hear because I know one of my team members was going to do it with her daughter. And so I'm super eager to hear how that went, because I, I just think it is such an important thing for us parents to really be talking to our children about things like this, about mindfulness, about awareness, about compassion. I mean, I think that, you know, we've all seen things happen in our world. And I mean, if anything, it, it makes me realize we just need more and more and more of all the conversations. And, you know, we need to be willing to have them from very early ages, because we have a lot of things, you know, that need some real help. And I think those, I mean, I just think the more we can bring those things to our children, that type of, I don't know, just emotional awareness and understanding what we're feeling and, you know, being able to determine when we are getting angry or upset or scared and being able to feel it and understand it before, you know, people necessarily start acting out or addressing it in a particular way. I mean, I've just been fascinated by it. The Guild is an insanely productive community of lawyer entrepreneurs with a growth mindset who share their collective genius and hold each other accountable to take their careers and businesses to the next level. But in 2021, we are upping the game. In addition to exclusive access to the group, FaceTime with the two of us, discounted pricing for live events, and front seat exposure to live recording and podcast and video, we are mapping out for members the exact growth playbook with our new program, Maximum Lawyer in Minimum Time. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships and experience content specifically designed to complement your plan for growth. For a limited time only, the Maximum Lawyer and Minimum Time program will be offered for free to all new Guild members. Join us by going to maxlawguild.com. I mean, one question I have for you is, I also think of this in as a kind of like a non-judgment zone. And I mean, I don't know what you think about this, but I mean, I try to just when things are becoming aware to me or, you know, they're crossing through my mind, I try to just sit with them, but not have judgment. I mean, and, you know, just have it be, I mean, what do you think about that and how does that work? And I mean, I feel like we as lawyers are so trained to almost judge everything. And so I kind of feel like I'm often untraining my brain and trying to just be neutral, if that makes any sense. That can be part of it. Um, and so one of the first things you'll do in a, in most meditation, like practices, if you start with like a breath practice, part of what you're really trying to do is get to your direct experience. So what you're trying to do is notice how things feel and what is here right now, as opposed to what's in your head and what is going through the filter of what's in your head. And so the non-judgment piece is part of that. Now, I I just had this really interesting discussion with my um, friend who may be helping me out on the blog soon, my friend Lauren, who's another attorney. Yeah. And um, we were talking about the difference between I was using the word compassion and how I kind of think you sort of need some uh, amount of compassion, even in basic awareness, 
to be able to really see things clearly. And she said, that's not neutral, that that's going more towards love. And I was like, no, it's more like a sense of friendliness where you can invite enough in, but not let yourself get overwhelmed. And so there's a lot of different shades of what counts as non-judgment. But like, if you can start down, now this is the practice, right? You're not going to just be non-judgmental right away. You're going to be judgmental at first. But Mm -hmm. part of the practice there is to see you're focusing on your breath. You're focusing on your breath. You get distracted. You start to think about what's on your grocery list. And then you right there is the opportunity. How are you going to respond to that? Now, what might what might come up for you is judgment against yourself because you're distracted or why can't I do this? What's wrong with me? All of these things. But really, the practice is just to say, oh, I'm thinking about my grocery list. I should (laughs) I want to be thinking right now about my breath. And then you come back to your breath. Mm -hmm. So when you do that, you're practicing the non-judgmental piece of it. But it's a practice. It's something that takes time to emerge. So it's not bad when the judgment comes up because then it's just you're practicing something else. Mm -hmm. Now you're practicing noticing the judgment and offering yourself care. And that could just be, this is what the mind does. There's no reason to get upset with myself. This is the practice and then just come back to it. It could be, you know, I've, you know, noticing that maybe you've had a hard day uh, and maybe that's what's going on. But really, it's just every time you come back, every time you do that and you drop the judgment, even if it arises for you, you're, you're still practicing it. Right. That is so interesting. I think of it as, I mean, I've been personally trying to work on not using that kind of should, you know, what I should be doing and all the shoulds that we put on ourselves. And I try to think of it like, you know, how as a mom, when your child kind of meanders or goes, whatever, you know, a lot of times you just kind of grab their hand gently and bring them to wherever you might need them to go. Like if they're walking somewhere that's not safe, or, you know, maybe that's not the direction you need to go in that moment. And so I kind of think of it like that of just, you know, kind of, I I think of myself as just grabbing my own hand and just going back, you know, and trying to just not have any thought about just be like, oops, we meandered. Here we go again. And And, that's that's the compassion right there. And it's so subtle. It's so subtle that you could actually almost miss it. And with our kids and with other people, it's so automatic that we don't understand that we're even using compassion because we don't have to stop. But with ourselves, we do have to try because we aren't trained in the same way to treat ourselves that way. But when no. you start treating yourself that way, you will be surprised at how different you may even act to your kids and to other people that you care about, how proactive you might be, how better you just might feel. And so you act better. Um, and so it's huge in terms of what you do. I mean, and the other thing is then off the cushion when you're not meditating, then you might notice how you talk to yourself and you say you should, or yeah. you made this mistake and it was bad or how you react or any of those things. And so that's when it can come into your life as well and have huge benefits for you. Oh, I just think self-compassion. I mean, teaching this 
in, you know, early ages. I mean, I would love to see this taught, you know, so early on, but I mean, especially I have such a heart for lawyers and lawyer moms. I mean, I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. I mean, really an inordinate amount. And I, I mean, I am as guilty as anybody else of just having really bad, nasty, you know, Eloise in my head, just saying things and learning to, to just really switch that and, you know, flip that where Eloise can be nice too. And we can, you know, work together to, to do something positive. And if we could teach that to others, I mean, I would love to see more of this. I mean, have you ever thought about like going into the law school around where you are and teaching a class on this? I, I mean, I think that the, some law schools do. I haven't yet taught any law school classes. Uh, I would certainly be open to it. But I do know that more law schools are teaching things like this. And I'm a school attorney. I will tell you, like, they maybe don't call it mindfulness um, in public schools, but they do have social emotional learning. They do learn some mindfulness concepts. And so I do think this is becoming something that is you're going to see common across a lot of different settings because it it is powerful and it is important. It's just the language might not always be the same, right. uh, but yeah, it is, it is very important. I mean, I like, I do like talking to lawyers uh, and professionals specifically because I know the pressures that we're under, but I also know how many people we touch. And I know just from my own experience, when I started to just give myself the chance to make myself happy and focus on my own health and security and safety. It changed what I could do for everyone else. Absolutely. Uh, I became powerful for other people. I became um, a resource for other people. And that never would have happened if I didn't focus on myself. So I think if we can make a few more lawyers feel a little bit better, I think we can make um, a lot more people feel a lot better. And, and, oh, and I yeah. think that when we can touch other people in that way, it, whether it's mindfulness or something else, I just think it's really important to be able to share whatever you're really passionate about so that we can help our whole profession because we, we really need it. Absolutely. There's such a ripple effect. I mean, where would you recommend, like if somebody, let's say, I mean, truly has never thought about mindfulness, never tried to meditate, where would you recommend somebody starts? I mean, like what would be the first step you would recommend? Pull out your phone and set a timer for a minute and sit there. That's okay. all you going to do. And if right. you don't want to do that, I'd sort of maybe just drop this question to yourself about why. Mm -hmm. Like what, what makes you not want to do it and see what comes up. Right. And I wouldn't push too much if, if it's really hard for you. Um, if you're in a really hard time in your life where you're dealing with a lot or maybe have any mental health issues, I'd say, go get that help. Mm -hmm. Go to therapy, go find whatever help you need. Talk to your family and friends. Um, mindfulness may be the next step or part of the part of the whole package, but really it's just sitting down and doing it. That's, that's where it starts. You don't need to buy anything, but if you do want to get an app and spend a little bit of money, any of the big ones, 10% happier, calm, um, headspace, most of those have some intro courses you could do. And so just start playing around with them. Like it's not, you know, don't make it into this big, you know, vision quest type thing. Just play around with it and see what happens and give yourself the ability to try it and not like it or try it and really like it or try it and not like it and try something else. My meditation practice, I think did well because I just was really curious about it. 
it was probably because of the philosophy background, maybe because I'm so much in my thoughts. I don't know, but it helped me enough immediately that it made me really kind of surprised by it. And I kept wanting to look. And then I, I found some good teachers along the way and they just kept helping me to chill out, not be so serious, just play, see what's going on, let myself have bad sessions. And when I could do that, it's amazing the other things that kind of happened for me. Like I didn't work out a few years ago. I was like barely doing anything. And I, because of my mindfulness practice, I was able to slowly start working out almost every day. And now I can't, I, I don't like going a day without working out. But because I was so not compassionate toward myself, I didn't want to suffer through not being in shape and all of that. Right. Uh, but once I had a bit of skills, I was able to start doing that. And I actually got physically healthier. So, you know, it's stuff like that, that can really change the way you live your life. Mindfulness doesn't fix everything, but what it can do is make you give you some level base level awareness and compassion to be able to face the problems that will help you fix some things in your life. Absolutely. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, when you think about your physical health on top of it, I mean, that's just truly not only life changing, it could be really life lengthening. I mean, it is absolutely so powerful. Well, it's interesting because I mean, I, started all of this just stuff when we had a a death, like in our, you know, family circle, like not exact family, but my son's very close friend, you know, so a young person died suddenly in an accident and it was just overwhelming to me. I mean, and you know, it wasn't my child. So you're probably like, what in the world's the matter with you? But I mean, it was just really overwhelming to me. And I mean, for months And I, and very immediately I realized like these emotions would come up and I was really having a hard time just like keeping it all together. I would go take naps and I would call them my stress naps. And I realized though, that those naps, I mean, would allow me to kind of come back to where I needed to be. And, and they were exceedingly helpful in my recovery through this. Now, obviously I needed to get therapy as well, but I mean, it was It was a very just intentional thing, but it made all the difference to me. And that's when I realized, wait a minute, there's some stuff going on in that brain of yours, you know, that could use some slowing down and some real intentionality. And so, I mean, I I really look to that just very difficult time as kind of like the beginning of really opening my brain to the idea of how I was just kind of operating, I mean, way beyond the capacity, speed, you know, all the things. And I just needed kind of a a release of things. And mindfulness has been just an amazing benefit, you know, that came from all of that. Yeah. And so, I mean, honestly, part of what we haven't talked about yet is body awareness. So there are multiple styles of meditation, but what kind of the body breath, a heart meditation that you mentioned, at least that's kind of the, the way I actually practice. I'll, I'll settle with a body scan and just start with that at first, where you're focusing on the physical sensations of your body and just going through that systematically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is the breath practice that you use to sort of focus and, and sit for a while. And then I finish with loving kindness, but body scan and even a little bit of loving kindness, that's body, um, body awareness. So that is focusing on the physical sensations in the body. 
And for lawyers, a lot of times we don't do that at all. I think sometimes we walk through life thinking we're just like a brain in a jar, right? Um, and I mean, I know that's how I was, where I would just kind of ignore my body and not pay attention to it. And I would sort of get irritated with it when it got sick or didn't feel good because yeah. it didn't do what my brain wanted to do. But like what you're kind of describing to me sounds like, you know, the, the body is actually where our emotions reside. Right. So when you start to get more aware of your body, you start to actually notice that emotions are in the body and you feel them there mm -hmm. um, or maybe don't feel them there. But when you don't feel them there, they'll come out in other ways. <laughs> so when you have more extreme emotions, including something like grief, the fact that you had a physical um, consequence or physical manifestation of that doesn't really surprise me very much at all. Mm -hmm. I think that's really normal and it's good when you can kind of let them be there. Now, sometimes it can be frustrating for us to let them be there, right. but when you can, they honestly take less time and do less damage to us than when we fight them or try to push them away. Well, and that's exactly what I, I kind of came to the conclusion that I needed to just let all this happen, even though it felt, you know, pretty out of control. I mean, as a good lawyer, you know, I can put on a good face and deal with all kinds of chaos and, you know, bad things and just keep on going. But I, I really came to understand that if I dealt with this grief in that same way, I was going to be paying for this grief for many, many years to come. Like I wasn't going to be doing what needed to happen to work through it. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, you know, obviously I, I don't mean, you know, to necessarily find something good in something, you know, really horrible, but I mean, it, it did provide this very just concrete example of, you know, me needing to address some of that, you know, emotion and grief that was in my body and how I was going to address it. I mean, and sometimes we just have to do that and there's not really a good answer. I just had a case that was pretty big case. And it scared me because of the consequences potentially and the implications of it. And it scared me. And I've been practicing for more than 10 years that, you know, I, I say on my website, I'm this like big um, school law expert and this great attorney. And I was scared of this case. And I was lead counsel. I had to make the decisions. I had no one else to look to. And it scared me. And I did not for the first day or two that I knew this case, I had this case. I did not want to admit that. But finally, when I was sitting in my, my, my meditation, it just was so obvious that I was afraid that I couldn't. And so I sat with it. And then eventually, as I sat with it, I realized I couldn't fight it. And I just had to accept that I was afraid. But mm -hmm. what it kind of helped me do, though, is that I could accept that I was afraid. I could accept that I might lose the case. I might it might not work out like I wanted to. But the only thing I could do was focus on how hard I fought and focus on, you know, taking care of myself as I went through it. Mm -hmm. And that really helped me because I, I let go of trying to focus on what I couldn't control. And I let go of right. trying to push away this annoying voice of you're afraid you're not good enough, all this stuff. I, I let go of trying to fight that. And I was just able to focus my whole attention on fighting as hard as I could. And I did fight right. as hard as I could, and I did a really good job and got a good result. But sometimes like when we push, try to push those things away, it's really more of a distraction. It takes more of our energy than to just be with it and let it, let it sit there for a while. It's really uncomfortable and it takes some time. So you may not be able, when you're starting out, you might not be able to sit with really hard emotions right away. 
Um, mm. I've been practicing for many years, so that might not be the same. And, and I, and I also at the same time have did talk to friends and things like that and ask for support and things like that. So that's also important, but like it, it there is power in this, even though it sounds schmoopy and woo woo and all that. And you're talking about emotions and feelings and being afraid. And it sounds vulnerable on the other side of that vulnerability though, is power to focus on what you want. And then, you know, now that I'm on the other side of this experience, I feel, I feel pride. I feel like a warrior. I mean, I feel like I, I could handle a lot because I did handle it and I, experienced it and I was willing to face it and I did a good job. Well, you know, it's interesting. And it's so interesting. You bring that up. I think when we're afraid being able to sit with that fear or in my mind, something like if something's out of my control and truly just being able to sit with the reality that it's out of my control It helps me make better decisions when I can really accept that because then when I'm doing something, I then ask myself, are you doing this because of your fear? You know, and I, and I try to really analyze what I'm doing to make sure that I'm, I'm not letting that emotion really guide my brain. And I'm really owning that emotion as being part of the mix. And so then I'm trying to make sure I'm, you know, thinking beyond that. And I find that very helpful to acknowledge when I'm fearful or, or maybe I just am kind of at the end of my rope with something, you know, and kind of just accepting that, but putting that in the mix of how I'm addressing it, because I think it helps me make better decisions. Yeah, I agree. And sometimes like for me, I, I know my own tendencies and biases with things or how I'm feeling about something. So I'll like maybe talk to a partner or my associate or something on a case. And I'll say, this is my, my kind of frame of reference. This is where I'm starting from, but let me tell me what you think, because I want to make sure that I'm not going too far in one direction. Right. Um, So you can kind of do that with yourself, or you can do that even in your teams or in your families, whatever. Um, And sometimes, you know, emotion is part of it. So sometimes you don't want to be wholly guided by your emotions, but sometimes it's learning how emotions and feelings play into it. Uh, Sometimes how something makes someone feel is a relevant factor to consider. Um, But it's, you got to pay attention and be careful with it um, to make sure that you're not just doing it totally emotionally. Yeah, this, this is just so fascinating. And I'm so grateful to you. I can't even tell you how grateful I am that you joined us today, because I just think this will bring so much information and insight to people who maybe aren't doing this or really encourage those people who've started and maybe they're not, you know, able to do it yet on a regular basis to help them, because I think this can really help. I mean, in that trifecta of what we do as moms, lawyers, and entrepreneurs, I mean, it's a lot, there's a lot to juggle. And so I really appreciate your time today, Claire. And how can people find you? Like if we want to find your blog or reach out to you, how is best? Can we do that? Yeah. So the blog logo is right behind me. It's Brilliant Legal Mind. uh, And so that's brilliantlegalmind.com. It's on WordPress. And we are also on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So please follow. I would really appreciate it. And then me, if you want to find me, um, find me on LinkedIn because that is where I am most active. I am a little bit of a fanatic about LinkedIn. So uh, it's Claire E. Parsons on LinkedIn. There are some other Claire Parsonses on LinkedIn and they are fabulous too. So you can look them up. But I use my middle initial because it's actually kind of a common name. So just find me, send me a connection request, and I'd be happy to chat. 
Okay, perfect. Well, thank you. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Mom Podcast, a production of Maximum Lawyer Media. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. See you next time.